Hey everybody, welcome back to Crafted on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out all the very many things that we are doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, we are talking about the rules of rum, let's call it, with Karen Hoskin, who is the founder of Montagna Distillers, which produces some of the best rum in the country, right here in Crested Butte, Colorado. And if you're saying to yourself, meh, I've never really been that into rum, well, then I suspect that this conversation is going to shed some light on why you've previously felt that way, and I am willing to wager that, after listening to this conversation, you are probably going to be inclined to give Montagna's rum a try. Because Karen doesn't make Montagna's rum the way that a lot of mainstream rum out there is produced, and so not only might this conversation change your whole opinion about rum, I think this conversation is a pretty amazing crash course in the history of rum and rum culture, the long-standing tradition of mountain rum, and we touch on a whole lot of other topics related to the production of this spirit. But that's not all, folks, because as you'll soon hear, Karen not only has a lot of conviction about her own rules for rum making, she has a number of deeply held principles that extend well beyond the craft of rum making. So, the next time you are in Crested Butte, you should absolutely stop into Montagna's Tasting Room right on Elk Avenue, or you can have some shipped to your home, or it might be possible to purchase it in a shop near you. You can find that information on the Montagna website, and of course, we will have a link to that product locator in the show notes of this episode. This episode is presented by our Blister Craft Collective, which is a collection of some of our favorite craft companies and some of the very best companies across a range of craft categories that support the independent work that we do here at Blister. One such company is New Image Brewing Company, which, like Montagna's, is also based here in the state of Colorado, and New Image is making some of the very best beer in the state of Colorado, which is certainly saying something. So you can learn more about New Image and the rest of the Blister Craft Collective companies on our website, and we'll include a link to the Craft Collective in the show notes of this episode. So check them out because I am confident that some of those companies are going to become some of your new favorite companies too. And now it's time to talk about rum with a woman who is making some absolutely top-shelf expressions of the stuff, Montagna Distillers' Karen Hoskin. Here we go. Well, I'm very happy to be here now in Blister headquarters with Karen Hoskin. Uh, this is not where our days started together. We started down at the distillery. That was beautiful, by the way. Thank you for showing me that and the tour and all that you all have going on there. But man, today has been a journey already. <laughs> yes, it has. <laughs> a, a really fun, a really fun journey, but it's been a three hour journey. Uh, and, and now we're finally hitting the record button. So 
So first of all, thanks for the fun day today already. Oh, it's been great. We've talked about so many topics already. Italy. Coffee. Coffee. <laughs> rum. Bindings. Bindings. Yeah, we, we've, it's been a tour de force already. Boating. Boating, yep. Um, wonderful. Um, well, it's great to see you. And really, I am excited about this conversation because I, I think it might be fair to say that rum is a spirit that maybe is less well understood than some of the others out there. You are shaking your head, so you agree with me on this? I am definitely nodding vigorously because I think you're absolutely right. So maybe we start here. What got you into thinking, I want to go into the rum distilling business? When did your appreciation of rum start? It goes back to 1989, January. <laughs> Do you have I a remember date the specific? moment. Okay. December 23rd. Um, actually, yeah. So it was really December of uh, 1988. But, okay. but really, it, my awakening happened in January of 1989. Um, I was in Goa, India, and I was on a beach, which is called Baga. Anybody who's been to Goa will know Baga. Um, and I was trying to find some alcohol to drink. I'd been living in India for six months, seven months at that point. And I, all I wanted was an alcoholic beverage because I lived in a dry city. You couldn't get booze. <laughs> I'd taken a very long train to get to, to um, Goa for the Christmas holidays. And uh, so I was sitting at a bar with a bartender and he's like, well, how about some wine? And I tasted the wine and the wine was mediocre. And I mean, I was all of 20 years old. I was not a connoisseur by any stretch. Um, and then it's an old Portuguese colony. So he's like, oh, well, you want something stronger than that. So he pulls down the port. I was like, no, no yeah. port. Like we're not, I don't want to drink port. And, um, so he kept hunting on the back bar and he pulls down this bottle of old monk rum, which was made in India, you know, kind of a vestige maybe of the British Raj period in India. He brings down this bottle and he pours me a sipper of it and I had this moment. Huh. You know those moments in your life when you taste something and you're like, that's mine, I'm home. And that's how I felt about that rum. Um, and interestingly, I was in Berlin a couple years ago and someone, I was in a bar that has all these really old school bottles of alcohol, primarily rum in their cabinets. They pulled down, a a bottle of like 1989 old monk rum. And they were like, you mean this? Huh. And I was like, that's it because you don't see it anymore. You can't go buy it in a store. And in many ways, the subsequent rums that came from that company have not been great. Huh. And I took a sip of that rum and I was right back there huh. on that beach in Baga. Um, so that was the beginning of my love affair with the spirit. And then since then I've tasted, I would say, 350 different rums yeah. um and old monk is not my favorite anymore but i remember i i can really easily tap that sensation of like this is the spirit that speaks to me which i don't feel when i drink a scotch or a whiskey i don't mm -hmm. feel when i drink mezcal or tequila there's really nothing else that speaks to me the way rum does so 
when that happened, um, it began a love affair that culminated in 19, let's see, 2008 with me saying, I want to start a rum distillery. Huh. <laughs> like, what? Um, but that was how I felt. I was like, this is something I love. I think it's going to be a, a, an industry that's going to be on fire over the next decade, which mm. turned out to be true. Yeah. It's like, I want to make something that I can make in the United States that's always going to be made in the U.S. As it gets bigger, it's still going to be makeable by me, as opposed to what happens with a lot of manufacturing, where you get big enough, it goes to China, it yeah. goes overseas somewhere. So I wanted to make something with American-grown ingredients um that was these were all intentional things that that i felt in 2008 and that's when montagna was born that was an unbelievable origin story <laughs> starting with well it was december 23rd 1988 I, you get major bonus points for specificity and uh and and it was old monk old monk rum okay so from 89 to 2008 you don't start thinking maybe someday I'll distill rum. That's not that's not 1989, 1990. Right. That hasn't happened yet. Yep. So then, talk a bit about the landscape. If you are taking us to kind of the early 2000s, you said you saw the growth potential for rum, but what was happening in the early 2000s? Like, what was hot then, and was rum already a thing or not? Like where on the radar or how off the radar was rum then? Right. I mean, I think if you went on your beach vacation to Barbados or Jamaica or um, Puerto Rico, then rum was a big thing. And it was what you were drinking on the beach and it was in cocktails and it was saturated with sweet juices. Yeah. And, you know, or maybe when you're in college, you were drinking Bacardi and Cokes as your pregame before you went to the party mm. or the concert or whatever. Um, so yeah, rum was out there. It was very working class. It was not a connoisseur's beverage. And I think in a lot of ways, I loved that about it. Um, from the time that I was in India until 2008, like I was the person that you've, you've been with these people who, you know, they're the ones will always bring a bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon to dinner because mm -hmm. they're Cabernet Sauvignon fans or They'll tell you all about their favorite scotch because they're serious scotch aficionados. I was the person who was like, check out this rum. I just brought this to you from, you know, Panama. And it comes in a little, like, this is not a great example, but comes in a little leather pouch, you know, or um, I was really at that point into a Guatemalan rum called Ron Zacapa that has since been purchased by Diageo and it's, you know, much more factory produced and it's not really the same rum that I drank back then. Um, but yeah, I was the person who you could ask, like, what's, you know, what rum should I try if I want to try something older and aged or if I want to try something light and fresh in a mojito or what cocktails should I have? Um, I could always tell you that information about rum, but not about anything else. Um, <laughs> uh, and so it was just a, it was a love for me. And also I have a, you know, I'm celiac. So I have a, a, people would say an allergy, but it's not really an allergy, but I can't consume anything with gluten in it. And you don't realize until you're celiac, how many spirits 
actually come in contact with gluten. So spirits are not, they don't have gluten in them when they come out of the still. There's not one single spirit that will have gluten in it when it comes out of the still. But there are a hundred ways that spirits get exposed to gluten, uh, various different colorings, different uh, natural flavors, different artificial flavors, um, barrels, barrel heads that have been sealed with wheat paste, um, uh, so many different ways that it might come across. And for whatever reason, rum never seemed to have that going on for me. So I could always drink it with zero negative consequences. So that was simultaneously going on. Mm. So that, I mean, that really helps the story. Rum was the spirit that worked just better for you personally. Exactly. Yeah. In every way. I loved the flavor of it. I came to understand that I tend to love um, rums that are not necessarily made from 100% molasses. I love rums that are made from fresh pressed sugarcane juice. And I love rums that are made from, you know, um, in Guatemala, they would call it sugarcane honey. Um, there's some complication around that terminology, but um, I love rums that are made from the whole sugarcane plant in various different forms. So that's the rum I wanted to make was rum made from everything that was in the sugarcane plant minus the bagasse, which is the fibrous solids of the cane and the water that was in the cane. Okay. So let's back up just a second then and talk about, I guess there isn't like the traditional way to make rum. You just mentioned a, a number of different ways. So many ways. So many ways. And so there's sort of never been, or, or maybe a better question is, is there the standard way? Is most rum that is being produced made a certain way? Or is it like, wow, no, that's really chopped up a whole bunch of different ways as well? Most of the rums in the world are made the same way. They're made from molasses as their base spirit, and they are distilled on uh, column stills. So large factory style stills, although you can make beautiful rum on a column still. Um, those are designed for high levels of production, high levels of volume, yeah. um, production, production. Yeah. And then you get the molasses based rums that are made on pot stills. So all kinds of different types of pot stills, but they're made from usually 100% copper, um, or at least the kettle is 100% copper. So pot distilled rum is widely believed to be more flavorful, more robust, um, but not as well suited to heavy production, huge mm -hmm. amounts. You can definitely make a lot of it, um, but not the same way you can on a factory column. Yeah. So, um, so molasses is, is maybe 90 some odd percent of how much of what the rums of the world are made from. So I tend to really be interested in the 10% that's made in every other way. Huh. So 2008, you decide you're going to start a distillery. What is your background like heading into this? <laughs> I'm sure it's completely what we would expect. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. I have a distilling uh, degree. No, of course, that's, um, that barely exists. I mean, that's come to exist, luckily, um, but not 15 years ago when I was getting started. And, you know, I have a degree in comparative religion from Williams College in Massachusetts. Like, I have a liberal arts education. And 
you know, the critics of liberal arts will tell you that you don't really actually learn to do anything very practical. Um, but the proponents of liberal arts will tell you that you learn to think critically right. and you learn to say, I can do that. And that's really where it came from for me. It was like, I'll figure it out. Of course I'll figure it out because yeah. I'm educated and, and I can figure it out. It can't be rocket science. Mm. And it isn't. Distilling is not rocket science. It's, it goes back, like I went to Nepal, um, I don't know, maybe six years ago. And all of the distillers in rural Nepal are women. And they're all distilling on these incredibly simple beautiful little copper stills and they're making rakshi, which is their traditional Nepali uh, distilled beverage. And I mean, they're throwing fruit into a fermentation in their basement from their fruit trees. Yeah. And it's naturally fermenting from yeast that they, you know, came out of the air and they're not, they are, they've never gone to distilling school. They were never trained. It's just something that got handed down to them um, through generations. So a lot of my colleagues in the business will try to convince everyone that they are, you know, sort of the holy grail of distilling information. And truthfully, I came much more from the belief system that it's not rocket science. It's like making a good soup or a good bread. You have to think about temperature and you have to think about good ingredients and you have to be attentive and pay attention and not let something burn or overwhelm with you know, in the case of distilling carbon dioxide or whatever, but it's not, it's not crazy complicated. Um, once you get to very big volumes, you're dealing with, you know, if you screw it up, then suddenly you just lost yeah. $25,000 of raw ingredients in yeah. fermentation. But that's not where I was coming from. So I, um, I've never believed that it was something crazy uh, complicated. Um, so I was a religion major. And um, I had had, for 12 years, I'd had a brand building company. So I was helping to build other people's businesses. Oh. Their, I designed their websites back when websites were only just becoming a thing. Yeah. Um, I was doing logos and um, marketing campaigns and advertising campaigns and designing trade show booths for companies to go to a trade show and exhibit their wares. Um, and... I loved it, but literally at the end of every project, I handed someone a package of materials and it was theirs mm -hmm. to keep and I had nothing. And I would go to the next project and I'd be like, okay, I'll make you this, I'll make you that. Um, and it was very satisfying, but I literally woke up one morning and I was like, I wanna keep something for myself mm -hmm. at the end of this day. And, um, and I thought long and hard about it. And I was like, what do I love? Well, I love rum. I don't drink that much. I always have to say that because it's easy to imagine when someone says I love rum yeah. that you're like some sort of raging. If I were a raging alcoholic, I would have not been Man, able I, to stay in business right, all these years. Right. But I loved rum and I loved entrepreneurism and I loved I loved the beach. I loved, you know, celebration. But I really had been over the years kind of turned off by a bit of what I would call the the masculine snobbery of whiskey or mm -hmm. bourbon or, or scotch, you know, women just were not yet part of that community. And rum was just a celebration of diversity mm -hmm. from the very beginning. There weren't, 
women distillers. There were women blenders and there were, um, but very few of them. And there weren't women owning rum companies or really distilleries at that stage in 08 in the US. Um, but rum felt like home to me. Mm. Like it was a celebration of Caribbean culture, which is very diverse. And it was a celebration of music culture, which is also very diverse from Jamaican dance hall to reggae to, um, you know, all kinds of different musical traditions. And, but it really, it was working class. It wasn't snobby. It couldn't be snobby because people hadn't discovered things about it that now can be perceived as a little bit snobby. Um, but it was just fun. The people were fun. Um, and that's been the most fun part of it is the amazing people that I've met and the places that I've been able to go in service of selling rum. So if I may back up for just a second, is there sort of the rum crash course 101 you can give us? You've already talked a bit about you know, some different ways uh, that it can be distilled and how we can make this. But if somebody's listening to this and they're like, honestly, I just really don't know much at all about rum. You've already uh, peppered in a number of really interesting details about sort of the culture around rum and the rest. But like, do we think of rum in terms of different styles, different like types? How, can you help us... Um, What's what's the right word here? It's um Yeah, we can add some color to the whole industry of rum, I think, around the liquid itself, you know. So there are brands that you know, um but really what you're asking about is like what makes that liquid what it is. Um so there is really one primary thing about rum and that is that it has to be made from sugarcane. Um doesn't matter you can't you can't call something made from anything else rum. Um, and that's been actually an issue. There have been some companies like even here in Colorado, a distillery came out with a rum that was made from sugar beets and they just didn't know. Ah. Um, so it wasn't rum. Um, it has to be distilled to below 190 proof. Um, if you distill sugarcane to 190 proof or above, it's vodka. Aha. Uh -huh. Um, and that's pretty much it. It doesn't have to be aged a certain way like whiskey does. It has, doesn't have to be made in a certain geographic area like um, tequila has to be. Um, so there are very few geographic ties for it, although it obviously has its birthplace in, in the Caribbean. Yeah, it's really quite simple. Um, so then once you are making something out of sugarcane, you can make it from a lot of derivatives of sugarcane. So fresh pressed sugarcane juice is one of the most original historic ways that rum was made um, because you were there in the sugarcane field and you ground the sugarcane and pushed the juice out and the yeast was in the air. It would automatically start to ferment. And then you made a rum agricole if you were in the French islands of the Caribbean, or you made a clarin if you were in Haiti. Um, those kinds of rums are so different from what I make. They're very high ester, which means they have these compounds in the rum, which are called esters. They're produced in fermentation, expressed in aging in some cases, um, but they're really unique flavor profiles. You find them in Jamaica, you find them in Haiti, um, 
you find them in some of those French islands, but you you don't find them in a mountain rum distilled in Guatemala or Colombia or Panama or something like that. So, um, so that's one tradition is fresh pressed sugarcane juice. And then there's the tradition of, you know, so in Guatemala, it's, it's legally required that you have to make rum from, you take the sugarcane juice and you boil it. So you put it into a kettle and you boil it and you turn it into this sort of, you know, it's almost like, um, like cake mix. It looks a little bit like chocolate cake mix oh. when you are beating it with a beater. Um, and then you ferment that and you turn that into rum. Um, so that's the Guatemalan tradition. And then there's like in Puerto Rico, you have to age rum for one year in order to call it Puerto Rican rum. It doesn't necessarily have to be in a new oak barrel or something like that. It can be in a barrel that's been aging rum for 10 years um, but it has to be aged for one year. So depending on where you are, mm -hmm. there are different rules and regulations. Um, Barbados is in the middle of a process to try to develop a geographic indication, which is a GI for the island of Barbados rum, because it's the birthplace of rum. So there's a lot of uh, feelings that they have to make a strong commitment to their rum tradition, um, but they don't all there are a lot of producers and there's Mount Gay, there's, you know, West Indies, which makes plantation, there's Foursquare. They don't all agree on what that GI should contain or not contain or whether you can add sugar. Um, so added sugar is a big piece of rum. So sugar, you know, coming into the rum long after distillation. So maybe at bottling time, yeah. that's considered widely by many rum distillers to be against the rules, yeah. you know, that's an adulteration of the spirit. And then there are other distillers who are like, are you kidding? That's what makes rum so much its tradition in our, in our co country or in, on our beaches. We don't like these snobby rums, you mm -hmm. know, from somewhere else that have been aged for a really long time with no added sugar. So there's a lot of different um, ways in which people put it together to to meet their local traditions and to meet their personal flavor profile. So for me, I didn't like sweet rum. And everywhere I turned, I was like, that rum is yeah. delicious, but it's so sweet. Why do they have to add so much sugar to it? Um, and that's what got me into it. I was like, I want to make a rum with no added sugar. 15 years ago, that was not a thing. Huh. People weren't talking about that. Now it's the absolute central conversation of rum is added sugar. So I wanted to make a rum without added sugar and I wanted to make a rum that was really simple. So simple ingredients, no flavorings. People were always like, you should make a spiced rum. I was like, I'm not making a spiced rum. That to me is an adulteration. That doesn't mean spiced rums are adulterated. That just means I didn't yeah, want to do these it. These are the Montagna rules. Exactly. I love, I love this so much. Yeah, I want... I got to make those rules yeah. because I was... I owned the company. Yep. I wasn't being governed by an AOC, you know, or a GI or any of those, like in the TTB has rules for whiskey and bourbon and what you can call a straight American bourbon versus what you can call, you know, scotch versus, you know, scotch um, has rules around peat and things like that. So I didn't have any of those rules. I could absolutely write my own story. So I wanted no sugar added. And I wanted to make it from American-grown sugarcane, um, which turned out to be harder than I expected. So, 
uh, I started in 08, which was Katrina. And so the biggest producer oh of sugarcane <laughs> yeah. in the US was in Louisiana. Yeah. And I thought to myself, oh, well, I'm never going to buy sugarcane from Louisiana because they have hurricanes there. <laughs> well, I didn't realize that, that sugarcane in a hurricane just lays down on the ground and is totally fine and keeps growing. It's not like other crops oh, where they get ruined and then they, you know, get disconnected from their roots. Sugarcane just lays down, keeps growing, and you can still harvest it. So, I learned that over time. So, I went from bringing it from Hawaii, which was expensive, and I had a feeling Hawaii was going to stop producing sugarcane commercially, which they have. Hmm. Um, and so, now I work with these incredible family farmers in Louisiana. We know each other by name. They come to visit me. Hmm. I go visit them. We do like, you know, events together. Um, they come and speak with me uh, when we're talking about farm connected distilling. And um, yeah, it's just so fun. Like we, we have a really beautiful relationship, but I buy Louisiana sugarcane and I've never in all the years I've bought it, we've never had a hurricane issue. Huh. Um, because, and I, Because I, of the resilience in part of sugarcane. Exactly. I had no idea. And it's also a monoculture crop, which could be a bad thing. Except that in Louisiana, because of those storm cycles, what else is gonna Lake Pontchartrain and all these? Um, they stir up the alluvial soils and and sort of flood them into the fields, huh. and that brings back the nutrients that are being eliminated by monoculture. So they don't have to rotate the crops and you know do something to bring the nitrogen back into the soil because the natural environment is doing that for them. I, so I was mistaken. I interrupted. I tried to jump on. I was thought you were going to say other crops wouldn't survive like sugarcane can, but that's not the story. It's that it's naturally the the soil is naturally <laughs> getting hit with with nutrients with different nutrients. Yep. Wow. They did discover that other things didn't grow as well as yeah. the sugarcane. Like the sugarcane's really suited to that environment. The other thing that's happening in sugarcane is, is GMOs have arrived. Since I started a rum distillery, they've created GMO sugarcane. So, if I were to buy my sugarcane from most of the parts of the world that commercially grow sugarcane for the commodity market, I would be potentially buying GMO sugarcane. GMO sugarcane is illegal to be commercially grown in the United States as yet. Who knows? That may change. Um, and it's, um, yeah, it's not something that I, that my sugarcane growers and millers are interested in growing. Um, so I feel a lot of confidence in the quality um, the other issue with sugarcane is the labor force. So some of my rum distilling colleagues have gotten in a lot of trouble for the labor practices, much like coffee did yeah. around, um, around sugarcane. And, um, I happen to work with a co-op of farmers who all, um, you know, they're family owners. They live right on their sugarcane fields, so they don't want them to be drenched with glyphosate, um, pesticides, things like that. So, um, I feel a lot of confidence in the quality and the labor practices. It's all machine harvested, so they're not, you know, in a lot of countries of the world where sugarcane is being harvested, it's um, You've got youth, you've got young people harvesting, people are being paid by the pound, you have people not getting sufficient 
access to um, hydration and shade when they're working and they're, you know, they're overworking because it's a harvest season. So they're trying to get as much harvested as they can in a short period of time. And this, all that, it's not what happens. Yes, my sugarcane harvesters work really hard, uh, but they're in machinery. They have hydration, they're in shade, they're in um, air conditioned cabins and um, the mills are really, um, you know, they meet the highest level of labor standards. They're all EPA regulated, which is not true with most of the mills in the world. So I feel really good environmentally and sustainability wise about our sugarcane. Hmm. Really interesting. So why open up business in Colorado? Well, there's a lot I didn't know. <laughs> so I might say, who the heck knows uh, why open a rum distillery in Colorado? But the bottom line is that I went to Guatemala and um, I went to Belize and I had a chance to really experience these rum traditions that were not in the Caribbean islands. You know, in Guatemala, they take their barrels up to 7,000 feet. I didn't even know they had 7,000 foot mountains in Guatemala um, to, in order to um, age because they think elevation wow. contributes incredible properties to the aging of rum. And I was like, you know, you can, you can <laughs> see the red, the like ding, ding, yeah. ding, the, the light bulbs going off for me when, when I was, that was Ron Zacapa. Um, and so, yeah, I just discovered the mountain tradition of rum, which was more central and South American and found that those were the rums I loved. Well, it turns out most of them are not made from hundred percent molasses. Um, they're made from the full juice of the plant, but heated in kettles. That's what I do. Um, and so, um, yeah, I just, I found my, my tradition yeah. and it was very mountainous. And then I thought, well, geez, if they can do that here, I can do that in Colorado. We have the best water. I'm not that far from my sugarcane. Like I'm really as close to my sugarcane as most rum distillers are now. Huh. And I thought, well, I can, um, you know, I can do this in a craft way. I can get copper pot stills and install them here. So there were really, I, all of the barriers got kicked down one by one until I couldn't any longer say, no, nah, you can't do that in Colorado. It's like, you totally could do that in Colorado. Mm. But we had a very uphill battle to convince the world that mountain rum was a thing that Colorado rum was a thing. So in, you know, Silverton, Colorado, where I started the company, rum was a currency back in the time of mining. There was no whiskey. These, these were not things yet. They were bringing rum from the coasts, from the East Coast and the West Coast. And it was how you bought a night with a prostitute was with rum. It was a currency. Um, much, you know, like that currency and the currency of buying a slave with rum, I, I don't, I'm not that excited about and I don't like to um, align myself with. I mean, I think we've done a lot to unravel some of those traditions of women and of um, people of color and their treatment in the industry. Um, but that was there, you know, so mm. there's history of rum in the mountains of Colorado mm. that predates any presence of whiskey. Interesting. Yeah. I'm really glad we're having this conversation. I'm learning so much. I want to ask you about 
some of the challenges uh, that maybe are unique or just quite present uh, in the creation of rum. But I'm not sure, are we done yet with what I'm now calling the Montagna rules? I love, I love this part, by the way. And by the way, this stuff is so fascinating to me that sometimes in, I'm going to just call this any sort of artistic venture, some endeavors, there's a whole lot of rules in place that you have to navigate around. And that's pretty interesting. And this is kind of an example where you're like, there's sort of two rules and kind of only two rules, right? And then there's these different traditions, but I, I just really dig that and think that's really cool here. But back to your own rules. Are there other things we should talk about before we move on to certain challenges or to your one of one still? Sure. I mean, we spoke of that I distill from the full sugarcane yep. plant. Um, and we spoke of the fact that I don't and never have added a no single added molecule of sugar. Um, I don't think we've talked about how committed I've been to changing the paradigms of advertising around alcohol. So if you had looked at the advertising campaigns that I was looking at when I started the company in 08, you would see a lot of women mm. scantily clad, straddling mm. a barrel, you know, what, whatever. Like it, women's bodies, women were physically used to sell rum. They were used to sell whiskey. They were all the alcohol beverage yep. beverages back in the day. And you know, I mean, I'm not a prude. I think women are beautiful. And I think I understand why people wanted to use them as advertising. But I wasn't going to do it. Um, I felt like it was cheapening to the intelligence and the, you know, capacity of women. What I wanted to promote was the capacity and the intelligence of women in distilling. And so, I've spent the last 15 years training women to distill um, giving women opportunities that they would not have been given elsewhere, um, helping them to gain credentials. So you met today, Megan yeah. Campbell, my head distiller, who has just completed a certificate course, um, very high level, very hard, demanding certificate course in distilling. Yeah. Um, she had that opportunity because Montagna yeah. helped to provide the structure for her. Um, so I know that's not really about distilling or about the liquid itself, but that's about who we are as a company. Fun other, fundamental principles. Yeah. Exactly. And the other thing that we've really that we've really been a vanguard of in the industry is environmental responsibility. So when I came into the business, rum distilleries were getting in trouble left and right, shut down um, for pumping their wastewater into the ocean, mm -hmm. for pumping it into the back field where it was creating a stench for the entire communities that lived on the islands um, for having their sugarcane workers dying at 24% higher mortality rates than other harvesters of agricultural products. It was, uh, there was a lot going on that I couldn't get comfortable with. Um, so we made a real commitment from day one in terms of how we use power. So we've been green energy powered from day one how we handle carbon emissions. So we've been offsetting our carbon since day one in excess of 100%. Um, how we 
uh, handle our wastewater. So my new distillery, which came on board in September of 2022, has some very uh, groundbreaking environmental adaptations so that we can handle water better, we can handle chilling better, energy use, um, recycling, bio waste, etc. Um, but all of those things have been, they were non-existent when I started. Mm. And so um, I think we've really created a culture that's now something that we teach other people about mm. and get other people excited about and get other companies to commit to. And that feels really good. Yeah. So it's a leadership uh, element of the company. Yeah. Challenges of making good rum. Let's talk about that. So I would say that one of the biggest challenges is um, really understanding how fermentation takes place. Um, so that was er an early challenge. We have mastered that over the last 15 years. Um, but one of the things I didn't totally understand was how was elevation going to affect this? So many distilleries have their mother, they have their you know, their root, their origin uh, strain of yeast, and they've cultivated that over many years. And it just goes from batch to batch. And they always have a, a culture of yeast that is unique to them and that they bring into their distilling process. It would be very hard for anyone to um, copy that. At Montagna, we're at 9,000 feet yeah. in the mountains. It gets to be 36 below outside yeah. our distillery. There's no natural yeast. We can't do what has historically been done where we capture a yeast. We could create a yeast strain and keep it going much like people do with a sourdough starter and mm. bread or something like that. Um, but so we've had to really be creative about how to be good fermenters um, in the environment of lack of wild yeast, lack of natural yeast, and the difficulty of keeping a strain alive. So that was a challenge, but we've We've been doing it for years and it's part of what makes our rum delicious is our unique approach to fermentation. Um, we also, you know, well, I would say a lot of distilleries have challenges we don't have. So distilleries throw off a lot of heat, stills throw off a lot of heat. We love that in Colorado, yeah. like nine, 10 months of the year, we're so happy to have the heat. Yeah. So that's actually an upside oh. for us. Um, but I would say, you know, the bigger challenge has been being a female founder in, a, in a, an industry that was not ready for that then. It is now. And I feel like we've come a long way. Being in a place where it was rural. So like on any, we started, I started this company in Silverton, Colorado. <laughs> like our hometown advantage was like a total of 500 people who yeah. could say, this is my yeah. hometown rum. Yeah. If we'd started it in Houston or something, you know, it would have been hundreds <laughs> of thousands of people saying this is our hometown rum. So that was a, a natural disadvantage. But I wanted to live and ski and hike and bike in mountainous Colorado. I didn't want to live in Houston or Dallas or New York City or Los Angeles or whatever. So... Those have been challenges. Um, rum was not really a thing. It wasn't you? You spoke of this. It wasn't widely known how good rum could be, yeah. how high quality the process could be, and yeah. the ingredients could be, and the makers could be. Um, so we really were at the early part of that curve. 
I just was reading an article yesterday that rum is leading growth in the spirits category um, in like 2022 numbers. So I've been predicting that for 15 years, but it's actually finally coming to bear out in the quantitative data and not just in the buzz. So hmm. that's been good. <laughs> Can we talk about the still? Yes. Man, that thing was beautiful. We'll have, we have photos of it. Um, we'll include those uh, in the show notes of this episode and uh, we'll put them on social or whatever. But um, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful piece of equipment. But you were telling me, you said this is a custom designed still. It's, it's literally one of a kind. What was it about the still that you needed? where you couldn't do more of an off-the-shelf still. Uh, talk about that. So I am, you know, maybe another Montagna rule is that I'm committed to pot distillation. So I didn't want to do column distillation. So I started with Alembic copper pot stills. That's a tradition that's typically from Spain and Portugal. North Africa, originally, it, it you know, if you set it, in the original way, you would say Alambic. It's from the Moorish country. Um, it's how they make most of the cognacs of the world and the eau de vies. And it's really how you pull a huge amount of flavor out of your ingredients. And I've loved that tradition, um, but I, um, I couldn't grow with it. So an Alembic copper pot still, the largest ones are maybe 100 gallons. Huh. And so if you were in cognac, and you were in a big growing distillery, you wouldn't see one giant Alembic copper pot still. You would see 30 uh, 100-gallon, 400-liter um, copper pot stills in a line, um, each being tended individually. And so, I couldn't grow that way in Colorado for a couple of reasons. One is real estate is expensive. Mm -hmm. Space is expensive. Um, but also... You know, I just didn't have the ability to put 30 copper pot stills in a space that were open flame fired like I wanted. So we had open flame um, distilling for 13 years and the fire protection districts and, you know, the rules were starting to get a little sketched out by that. That happened in France too, in cognac country. And they tried to c convince all the cognac makers to switch to steam jacketed stills and they mutinied because it didn't really taste the same. Um, so I was trying to find a way to stick with the um, beautiful Alembic tradition that I came of age in to make rum in only 100% copper pot kettle distillation. I wanted to grow in a small amount of real estate, a small footprint. Um, and I wanted to, to keep some of these retort or reflux traditions that are part of the alembic tradition so there's a bell and a lentil our stills had had a bell and a lentil so i describe it as you know chemical reflux and um, physical reflux so physical reflux tends to happen by shape chemical reflux happens usually by temperature um, we have both we've always had both and so i wanted to keep that all the stills i looked at Every modern tradition of distillation from all over the world, I was losing something. And so I went to a 
custom still maker up in Portland, Oregon. And I said, are you willing to work with us on this project? Mm. Um, and he said, absolutely. He'd never made a lentil before. Huh. He'd never made an Alembic style pot still before. Um, and I was like, I want a 500 gallon still. I want a big one, five times the size of anything I've had before. He was like, all right, let's do it. Huh. It's terrifying. <laughs> you have no idea if this person's going to be able to do it, how long it's going to take. If the and then once you make the rum, the first rums off a still like that, it's still six months or a year before you know if it's going to taste the way you want it to because of aging. We've never, you know, we you can tell some things about the rum when it first comes off the still, but not everything. So um, it was a really vulnerable, scary process to hand over this manufacturing to this guy hope that he was going to do it. It's a company called Bridgetown. He did a beautiful job. Mm. He made that gorgeous still yeah. to my exact specifications. We fired it up in September of 2022 for the first time. And we just in the last few weeks tasted our first six-month-old rums. They're delicious. Um, they, so, they've done everything I set out to do. They are copper pot distilled. So, they have that robust, flavorful profile. They're, um, you know, made on the still that has capacity to grow. So, now we can make more and more rum than we've ever made before. That's been the biggest Achilles heel of the company is not being able to make enough rum to meet demand. For 15 years, we've sold every single drop, every single year that we've ever been able to make and afford to make. And so, we, we overcame that challenge. And then um, it's you know, it just functions beautifully. So, it actually works. We're not constantly fighting with it to yeah. like, you know, we had some tweaks that we had to make to the lentil because it, it can be overzealous in its reflux, which means it's pushing spirits back down into the still rather than letting them to escape to be captured and put in a barrel. Oh. Lots of little tweaks that we made. Um, but yeah, it's an amazing piece of equipment. And it's steam jacketed. So, I got out of the realm of direct fire, which was made the fire, you know, compliance people happier <laughs> and which we have to keep them happy. Um, and yeah. And, and there's just, I have nothing to complain about with it. Our runs are long. So, we have 12 hour runs. So, we're working on ways to preheat the wash. I don't like to do that in the still for that's getting a little too technical. So, we're looking at ways to preheat the wash before it goes into the still so we can cut our run times down. Hmm. Um, but yeah, that's that beautiful new still. Yeah. Let's talk about aging. Um, maybe some standards in the rum world, if there are such a things or if everybody's out there just making stuff up when it comes to aging. Talk a bit about that. So, aging is to me where in, in many ways the rubber meets the road. I mean, you can't make a shitty spirit and put it in a barrel and have it come out delicious. Uh -huh. That's just the bottom line. Um, so, aging isn't everything. But you can take a good solid liquid that you wouldn't necessarily want to sip on an ice cube because it's intense. It's maybe high um, velocity. It's high proof. It's whatever. Um, put it in a barrel and introduce all kinds of delicious elements to it that didn't exist in fermentation or distillation. 
Um, so to me, the barrel is a really important part of the process. We chose to align ourselves very early on with, I mean, for me, I would say with a particular distiller whose name was Jake Norris. He was distilling at Stranahan's when we started. So we used Stranahan's barrels for many years. Um, he moved over to 80 Laws Whiskey House in Denver. Laws, people say Laws Whiskey House. Yep. We moved with them. Um, he's no longer at Laws, but uh, we're still in a barrel program, a really dedicated barrel program with Laws, mm. which we love because the bourbon is delicious. And so then we take their barrels once the bourbon's been decanted from the barrel, bring it to Crested Butte. It's right there in, in Denver. Yeah. It's still wet and fresh with mm. the whiskey that was in it when it comes to us. Whereas if you know they were shipping it to the Caribbean, it would have to um, dry out. It would potentially not be as robust when it got there. So we love um, we love our relationship with Laws Whiskey House. Uh, we do fifty three gallon American oak barrels in general. But one of the things I've had the most fun with is these barrel programs. So. The Oro and the Platino are aged only in Laws whiskey barrels. We should say your Montagna, Montagna Oro. Oro and Platino. Yep. Yes. Um, those are aged for about 18 months. Some of ours are now aged two years mm. because we have the luxury of aging longer. And those only go into uh, secondary barrels from Laws Whiskey House. So they've aged bourbon for two to five years and then we get them and we put um, Oro in first. And then once the Oro comes out, we put two rounds of Platino in for about 18 months each. Um, but I wanted to experiment with other types of barrels. So the Exclusiva is finished. So it goes into a Laws Whiskey House barrel for two and a half years. And then it switches over to an, a French oak barrel that previously had port. Um, you know, we, we collaborate with different port companies uh, for those barrels. And then the Valentia goes for almost four years in an American oak barrel from Law's Whiskey House. And then the last six to 12 weeks, we put it into a smaller, like a 30-gallon American oak barrel that previously had Catoctin Creek rye. So it's a rye barrel. So you get a little rye spice on the finish of the Valentia. You get a little port um, vinous quality finish to the Exclusiva. And then you get the bourbon finish on the Oro and then, you know, the, the Platino because of filtration and because it goes into a tertiary barrel is just a lot lighter, a little less of that whiskey character. Hmm. I like to ask at least one dumb question per conversation and maybe this will be it. Um, so you've mentioned four different Montagna rums, I believe. Is it just the aging and the barrel? processes that are different here on those four or that's the switch up it's that is it yeah yep. that is it okay all the rums that we make come off of the still exactly the same yep. and that's not true for every distillery uh some people distill to different proofs depending on how long they're planning to age there are lots of different schools of thought on this um i have found that that doesn't really matter for us mm -hmm. um so we distill everything to about 70 to between 70 and 74% alcohol. That is extremely high for an Alembic style pot still. Mm. If you took a formal class on distilling, they would say, oh, Alembic style pot stills, you're going to get 
50, 60% alcohol off your still, we get 70, 74%. So we're getting high yields. Um, and then, um, yeah, I mean, I think for, for me, I like having consistency in the process and then bringing the differences to life in aging. Um, and that, I mean, everybody says to me, I can't believe these are the same rum, Uh the, the rye spice on the Valentia, the tannins on the exclusiva, you know, the good tannins, um, you know, the Platino is so clean and crisp and, um, it's the same, it's the same base spirit, just, you know, but we're also not aging for a really long time. We released a seven-year-old, um, a limited release, uh, which we've now sold out of, but that was called the Carencia. And that one was, you know, aged longest. And I didn't really feel like it was radically different from, um, a four-year-old for us. Mm. And then we've actually this, we just released our second overproof. So a high proof, hundred proof rum, um, that's called the Fuerza. That one's only available in Crested Butte at our tasting room Hmm. in collaboration with Uncle Nearest Whiskey, which uh, is a company that I love and respect deeply, um, to a female founder and a female master blender. Um, and so we, yeah, we released a, uh, a limited version with them. Um, those are a hundred proof that I think is a, is a radical change. So a hundred proof in the barrel, um, what you get is the ability to taste a lot more, um, of the character of the rum at the higher proof. Hmm. Um, so you don't get to drink as much of it, but you can really taste. And so if you have a poorly executed base spirit at a hundred proof, you're going to get all the negative congeners, the negative uh, molecules, everything that you don't want to taste in that. That's currently available in the tasting room. Okay. Yes. I'm, I'll be coming through. Yeah. I think Fawn Weaver and Victoria Edie Butler are doing more for the craft spirits industry than really anyone I've met in a long time. They're changing the conversations about storytelling of, you know, some of the origins of the entire tradition. So uncle nearest taught Jack Daniels how to make whiskey. Mm. His story was never told until um, Fawn Weaver brought it to life. Mm. Uh, so, just I'm really proud of them for what they've done. Um, and 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 that whiskey is phenomenal and the company is phenomenal mm. and their properties um, that they've developed with visitor centers and, and what, yeah, I'm just really impressed. That's very cool. Give us, I know you have this down pat, but of the primary, we'll call it the main four types. If somebody's listening to this and maybe they're like, ah, yeah, I haven't had rum since, you know, my college days, you know, mixing it with Coke or whatever, to help people get a sense of maybe where they might land on the four primary types that you're offering, give the like quick explanation you've you've done a little bit of this but but let's give it in one place so to start with the platino platino so i am a daiquiri fanatic so we talked about earlier we were talking about coffee and you know i love ethiopian dry process um i'm a daiquiri fanatic and when most people in america think of a daiquiri they think of like some icy cocktail with like strawberries in it and they, you know, pour it in a big glass and it comes to a little point at the top. Yeah. 
That is not the cocktail I'm speaking of. A classic daiquiri originated in Cuba. It's, they call it the Holy Trinity of rum. It's light rum, typically light rum, and lime, fresh squeezed lime, and a touch of sugar. Um, so the sugar can come in the form of a little simple syrup, or it could come in just actual sugar. Um, just depends on who's making the daiquiri. And that's it. Three ingredients, shaken, poured into a coop, you know, so st served straight up, not on the rocks. And um, it, a light rum will either sink or swim in a daiquiri. It will either ruin it or it will make it the most beautiful thing you've ever tasted. So I made Platino because I'm a daiquiri fanatic. Mm. I love aged white rum, clear rum in a beautifully executed daiquiri that's not sweet. It's right on the edge of tart and um, fresh and light and it's just perfect. So that's the Platino. So okay. if you are a person who drinks a mojito or a daiquiri, or you would sit and sip like a Blanco tequila or a, a Belvedere vodka, you're going to gravitate toward the Platino. That's the one that's won our most gold medals and double golds and best in class designations because it's so rare. The Oro is a really great, what I would sort of call an entry rum. Um, it's aged, it's beautiful. Um, it has a lot of character, but it's not overwhelming like some longer aged spirits can be to someone who's starting out mm. with aged spirits. So the Oro is aged only for about two years, 18 months, something like that. Um, so you don't get smacked in the face by oak, um, but you start to understand how good uh, and solid a rum, an aged rum can be when it's made right. Um, and then the exclusiva. Wait, just a sec. Okay. So we just had Oro. Oro. We did. We sipped some Oro. We sipped some Oro. Um, this was, I mean, we, quite a bit of ice was in that glass, right? Quite a bit of ice, Oro. You were worried. You said, I'll oh, try it. It might be too dry for my, my personal taste. Turns out, no, not at all. Um, cause you were asking like, well, what, what are you often drinking? And it's like, you know, it, it'll be whiskey neat or with a cube, like a little, you know, and so that was a lot more ice than I would ever be putting in a glass. Yes. Is that though, would, would you, do you like, or do you often recommend that Oro with quite a bit of ice? Do you like it that way? Or would you often suggest less? I would, so yeah, so just for context, we were um, at a bar in a hotel, um, they were pouring our Oro for them. So it wasn't at my tasting room. Yeah. So I wasn't getting to um, call the shots. I would, if it were me, I would have put that Oro on a King Cube yep. rock. So you get the exposure to the cold, yep. but without quite so much contribution of water. So, so King Cube would be the normal way you would serve up that Oro. Absolutely. Yes. Because um, too, much, too much ice when it melts, then you lose, the, you lose the, the robust flavor of the spirit itself. Um, so yeah, the King Cube or just like maybe even uh, stirred on ice and then the ice is kept in the yeah. cup and then you pour it off to be able to sip it chilled. Yeah. Um, I tend to love to drink Oro just at room temperature because it holds up. 
you know, if, it, if a spirit is not really high quality, then it won't hold up at room temperature yeah. and you'll be like, oh, too much. But when you mentioned that you're typically a bourbon drinker, I find bourbon to be quite sweet. And I think a lot of that is new oak. I think a lot of that is just distilling traditions, but I think it's quite sweet. Um, so when someone is a bourbon drinker, when they taste something like Oro or Exclusiva or Valentia, it's dry to them because it doesn't have added sugar. Um, it's, it's just different. Um, and I love that about it. That's what I wanted mm -hmm. to make. That's what I set out to make. Um, but bourbon drinkers might find it too dry. So mm. then they would add just a little touch of simple syrup little, or sugar, you know, a little, a little muddle of, mm. of uh, sugar in the bottom of the glass, or even, you know, we make old fashions, rum old fashions, rum Manhattans, where you've got a little muddled fruit, maybe a cherry, um, a really, not a maris, maraschino yeah. cherry like we think of them, like a true uh, lovely um, Luxardo cherry, maraschino cherry, like an Italian style. So that can add a little sweetness back, but it's a little more um, in line with the quality, I would say. Let's keep going. So the third... The Exclusiva is our driest by far. Um, so it's finished in that French oak barrel, which is a little more astringent. Um, it's finished in a barrel that aged uh, Cabernet Sauvignon and then a tawny port. So it's not bringing up much sweetness at all. Um, it's aged for three years. So you get a little more of the barrel, uh, the oak um, so yeah, it's dry, but oh my gosh, it's so yummy. Um, and then you get some of that wine vinous quality on the finish from the um, Cabernet and the Port. And then the Valentia is um, aged for four years and most of its time is spent in that same American oak barrel that aged the Oro, the Platino, the Exclusiva. Um, but at the end, because that barrel gives a lot of character right away, we put it in that 30-gallon um, Catoctin Creek rye barrel. The head distiller and owner of Catoctin Creek is an amazing woman named Becky Harris. Mm. She's someone I've collaborated with on different projects for years. Um, I love the idea of working with a female-founded whiskey company. And so I love spicy. Like for me, all day long, give me spice. Um, <laughs> You know, if I, even with that daiquiri that I described, like I wouldn't be above putting a little drop of our um, pineapple habanero bitters at Montagna huh. on the surface. So good. Anything with spiciness to it. So the rye is a spicy finish yeah. of a spirit. So we finish it in that 30 gallon rye barrel and then it has that little bit of rye spice at the end, which I love. But you won't make a spiced rum, but you like spice. Exactly. Two different, so I I love um, like uh, pepper spice. I love like spiciness as opposed gotcha. to like the spices you would put in baking. Spiced rum is made with baking spices. Those are typically associated with sweet things. You would have to add sugar to make a really good, I think, a really good spiced rum. I don't love to add sugar. Yeah. So I, I have made a promise and we'll see if it comes to pass. This is our 15th year anniversary. Mm. I'd like to make a rum liqueur, my first rum liqueur, because I'm a fan of, we actually talked about this earlier, you know, beautiful Italian aged potable bitters. So yeah. I love um, 
I love drinking Montenegro. I love drinking um, uh, Nonino. I love, um, you know, I, I'm a fiend for a good Aperol spritz, you know. So, these are all aged Italian potable bitters. Um, so, I want to try to make something like that of my own. We'll see what, how it comes out. But ideally, not, so, not too sweet. We'll, we'll see. I never want to oversell something until I've tasted it, but we've made over the years something called Dr. Bob's snake oil. Many of our fans have had Dr. Bob's snake oil before. Um, It's (laughs) lemon, orange, clove, and vanilla. And so, I like the citrus with the baking spices. I can kind of handle that maybe a little bit better. It's maybe a little more in the school of a limoncello from Italy. We'll see. Um, stay tuned. Stay tuned. It's amazing. That was a great rundown. For people who maybe are whiskey or bourbon or scotch drinkers, kind of broadly speaking there, or, or making some big generalizations, I guess, lumping a lot of things together, do you think the Oro would be the place to start for them? Or... I think it depends on what kind of whiskey they drink. Let's say they're a bourbon, you know, whatever. Like if they drink Jim Beam, yeah, I think, you know, they might they might gravitate toward the Oro. If they drink, you know, a $90 bottle of Laws whiskey, yeah. um, then I think they're going to tend toward our longer age three and four year. Okay. Um, one of the things I wanted to mention is that our most popular cocktails, I have a bar in Crested Butte on Elk Avenue. Our most popular cocktails are variations on a theme of an old fashioned or a Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have tons of customers who just love those alcohol forward cocktails with brown, our brownest spirits, as mm-hmm. we say. So um, I think that's the place to start for someone who loves bourbon is like, come and try our old fashioned. Cause most people would say, wait, an old fashioned is made with bourbon. I'm like, well, there's such a thing as a rum old fashioned. Yeah. It's a long esteemed tradition, yeah. but this, you know, this is really where much like a clear rum in a daiquiri, this is really where you see whether the spirit can stand up. Um, and then you get a little touch in the case of a Manhattan of those, again, those aged, let's say Carpano Antica formula, um, aged potable Italian bitters or just regular bitters like an Angostura um, or a Peixotes or something like that. We make a line of beautiful bitters at Montagna that uh, we sell online, but we also sell in our tasting room. And again, spicy. So, habanero, um, jalapeno, black pepper. I just love those, uh, those kinds of spices in my cocktails. This has been amazing. Um, so fun to talk with you. Your palate seems really impressive to me also, given like the range of conversations and things we've talked about today. So, I don't, I don't know if there's future, like maybe those are off-air conversations as I just learn more about what you're into and all these like interesting different spaces of the food world and the bitters conversation that we had, which was really interesting to me. But I think this is really cool and I, I love what you have done in this particular category and the way that you've gone about it. None of it seemed like an obvious path, actually. And uh, I, there's a special place, I think, in my heart for people that are just like 
screw it. This is what we're going to go do. And, um, and you've done it really well. And I'm really proud to live in this community with you. And I, I imagine that a lot of people would share that same sentiment. So um, thank you for the time today. Uh, and thank you for everything that you've been doing. Well, thank you. It's been such a pleasure. It's not often that I get to go deep. Hmm. And I do have, a, I recognize that I have a lot of passions. Hmm. And I think that's true even of people who work in a corporate job sitting at home in front of a computer working remote. You know, I think it's one of the things I love about being in this American culture is there's so much room for innovation, room for people to bring their passions to life, um, to find investment, to, um, you know, to, to become known for something that they get excited about. I will say that the one of the weird inspirations that I had very early on was Marie Sharp in Belize. Uh. You know, she was a female entrepreneur making carrot-based hot sauce in Belize that's literally on every single restaurant table in the country of Belize. But she was using the revenues from that company to pay for education and to really improve the the working um, the workings of her country. And that was like an aha moment for me about using business as a force for good, that I could probably be making purple toilet paper. But if I was doing it in a mindful way, caring about the people I work with, making the world better in some way um, for my employees, for my community, philanthropy, donations, um, all of that, that it would be amazing. And that's, I learned that from Marie Sharp. And so... Um, I'm grateful to have an opportunity to use entrepreneurial business as a force for some greater good, not just for booze. <laughs> There's the booze part. And we, we thank you for making good booze. But uh, yeah, these other bigger circles that expand from the business, um, I know those are no less important to you. And I appreciate that about you as well. So Thank you. Awesome. You bet. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Well, that's it for this edition of Crafted. I want to say thanks so much to Karen for the wonderful day, actually, including this particular conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. And if you are enjoying these crafted conversations and really diving into the details of this whole myriad of different products and product categories, well, then I would very much appreciate it if you would take 30 seconds to leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, and that will let us keep this whole crafted conversation series going and growing. All right, everybody, thanks so much. Take good care. We will talk to you again real soon.